Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I am Jason Fields. Matthew Galt is not here. Turkey would like to rebrand itself, trying to persuade the world that it should be called turkey Uh. I guess they were tired of the jokes. We here at Angry Planet wish their marketing team good luck. But the truth is, Turkey isn't so fond of change, or at least its president isn't. Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been in power for well over a decade, switching jobs from prime minister to a newly powerful presidency, and then tightening his grip on the media and virtually everything else, especially after a coup attempt. On May 14th, he's facing an election that few expect to be free and fair. We'll get to all of that, and we get to do so with friend of the show, Stephen Cook. He's Eni Enrico Matai, Senior Fellow for Middle East and African Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he also writes a lot for foreign policy. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be back with you, Jason. Well, so maybe not everybody knows Erdogan as well as as you do. Um, So can you just... Tell us briefly who he is, and um, I think, really, why does he want to stay president so badly? <laughs> so, those are really good questions. Um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been the leader of Turkey since March of 2003. He was first the prime minister from 2003 until he became the president in 2014, uh, and then in, has enjoyed enhanced power since 2017 when he helped uh shove through constitutional amendments that made him even more powerful than he was uh, during his previous three years as the president. Prior to his holding national office, he was the mayor of Istanbul, a very successful and effective mayor of Istanbul in the early and mid-1990s. He comes from uh, the Islamist uh, movement in in Turkey. Um, He was... In 2001, he, along with um, a guy named Abdullah Gul, who's probably the most well-known among the founders, um, broke away from the traditional Islamist movement, the kind of old guard, to establish the Justice and Development Party. And then in the first election in which they ran, uh, they won a majority in parliament. Um, He was not, Erdogan was initially not the prime minister under the first AKP government. That fell to Abdullah Gul. Because Erdogan had served time in prison in the mid-1990s for reciting a poem 
that was interpreted as his as a religious call to arms, even if the poem was written, even though I should say the poem was written by a Turkish nationalist. But coming from Erdogan's mouth, it was seen as a religious call to arms and then and as an effort to to undermine the security and stability of the country. So he actually spent time in prison. Um, the AKB government had to change the law in late 2002, early 2003, in order for him to assume the position of prime minister, which it did in March 2000, in February, March 2003, when he became the president and then Gul became the foreign minister. And then a few years later, actually became the president of the Republic, the office that Erdogan holds now. So that's, in short, the political history of of Tayyip Erdogan. Um, We shall see soon whether that political history continues, whether there's another chapter of it. Why does he want to stay in power um, longer? I think there's a number of compelling reasons. One for him, compelling reasons for him. I'm not sure compelling reasons for the Turkish people. But um, when he is um, sees himself as this transformative figure who is the really the only one who can continue the work that the Justice and Development Party began in 2003 and continuing to transform Turkey uh, into this country that reflects the values of the the party that Erdogan leads. And we don't need to go into great detail about it, but in terms of power, prosperity, and piety, the three P's of the, of the AKP, as it were. And um, so he still believes that he, he has more work to do on that. Second, on October 29th, 2023, it will be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Turkish Republic. And Erdogan, more than anything else, it's like his prime directive is to be the president on the 100th anniversary of the Republic and essentially declare himself more important than the founder of the Republic himself, Mustafa Kemal, known commonly and widely as Ataturk. Um, in, in a way, what the AKP and what Erdogan has done has worked within the institutions of the Republic, even though they come from a tradition that actually sees the Republic as a historical accident uh, and have tried to change the institutions of the Republic in a way to kind of reflect that idea that um, that the Republic is sort of this in, uh, unnatural, unnatural thing. And then I think the third reason, and perhaps the most compelling for Erdogan at this point, is that if he is if he loses the, le- the election and leaves office, he loses the immunity that he has enjoyed as first the prime minister and then the president. And he is spectacularly corrupt um and uh he would face perhaps prosecution as a result of his the vast corruption in which he has overseen uh, i mean you know he made his name in istanbul as istanbul is being very clean and cleaning up a corrupt municipality but you know power corrupts i guess and um he's you know believed to have swiss bank accounts he you know allegedly comes from a simple background his wife carries these you know purses that are worth tens of that that you know the price of which are tens of thousands of dollars they've hardly kind of kept to the to their sim, simple simpler roots that they've they've sort of created this myth about about him turkey i think is a fascinating place uh, for any number of reasons uh but one that i think not everybody understands is just how secular a place it was for a very long time uh as a matter of fact wearing headscarves it, Please correct me, but I believe it actually wasn't allowed in some public circumstances after uh, Ataturk created this republic. I mean, it was really adamantly um, modernist, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. um, 
So can you talk a little bit about how it's changed over the last 20 years as you see it? Yeah, and it has changed. It's It's been extraordinary. And, and, and I think the word secular, though, is somewhat problematic. I mean, if, if we if we think in terms of secularism in the way in which Americans do, and I assume the vast majority of Angry Planet's uh, listeners are, are Americans, our our kind of the way in which we think about secularism is that the government doesn't really have a role in, in there's no official religion. There's no role. Your religion is your choice. How you choose to express it is, is your way of expressing it there. If you want to wear a cross or a yarmulke or for women, a hijab, um, that, that is within your right and, and you do it and the government cannot, uh, proscribe your religious practice in Turkey because there isn't a really good way to translate it we in english we often refer to it as a secular system but it's more modeled after the laicite of france in which actually the government has a role in uh, religion and that is to control religion and that is to ensure that religion remains something of in in uh, under the republic religion remains in the realm of private faith rather than it bleeding out into politics and society well when the justice and development party came to power they sought to change that. And although the government continues to play this role in religion, it has played a, a larger role in actually promoting religious values through, uh, throughout society. Now, this isn't unprecedented in Turkish history. Um, the, what the press often refers to as the kind of staunchly secular Turkish military. When the military came to power in a coup in 1980, it went on a kind of mosque building binge, um, expanded religious education on the theory that religion would depoliticize a society that was deeply, deeply polarized between the political right and the political left that had led to actually street violence. That turned out actually not to be the case that some Turks will say actually sowed the seeds of the success of Islamist movements in, in, in subsequent years. But be that as it may, the the Justice and Development Party has undermined certain aspects of this very kind of rigid laicite that was established uh, with the with after the Republic. Um, certainly, um, the idea that women cannot wear hijab at you know state universities within the parliament, some official buildings that has been reversed. Uh, and, and that's something I think that now people generally accept, except for the most, you know, staunchly secular, uh, uh, among the, among the Turkish elite. But there is a sense also that, as I mentioned, and, and you sort of have to be in, have been in Turkey pre AKP, the pre AKP era and the post AKP era to see how kind of religion tends to flow throughout um, society. This isn't to suggest that Turkey's a theocracy, but that religious values have, there's more emphasis on religious values and that there's a, um, and that, and that, and that there's just a, a whole host of ways in which the, the AKP in popular culture and other places have really emphasized, um, religious, religious values. And I think that that's meaningful to many, many Turks. You started seeing women who wear hijab show up in places where they had never uh, should have uh, appeared before and they see it in a way as, as the justice and development party and everyone protecting their freedom, their freedom to worship how they, how they see fit. 
this is probably outside of both of our realms of expertise, but that does sound very familiar to what's been happening uh, with some of the Christian movements here in the United States, uh, <laughs> creating uh, this a different view of freedom of religion uh, and incorporating it, incorporating it more closely into uh, daily public life, right? You will not be shocked, Jason, to learn that sometimes I read these stories and I say, that sounds a lot like Turkey. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are some parallels year um to it although in 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 a, in a in a striking way the the turkish islamists the akp haven't been as, as strident or militant about it as some of the christian nationalist movements in the united states the, certainly turkish islamists have felt under siege in many ways that in in similar ways that christian nationalists have felt that they're under siege by a secular culture that rejects their values and so on and so forth and that has been the story of Turkish Islamists in in ways, especially since the establishment of the Republic and this kind of aggressive secularism or laicite, um, they have felt uh, under siege, their values attacked. Um, and but since they have um, accumulated power in the early part of the 20th century and have continued, they have been somewhat less, I think, militant or, for lack of a better term, radicalized on this issue and have gone about the business as I just mentioned, of um, expanding the realm of religion in an officially secular republic. So can you describe how the Republic of Turkey functions as it is now, um, in, especially in terms of, well, I mean, free and fair elections, because uh, that's that's what we're coming up on in another week or so. Yeah, um, we the Turkey can't fairly can't ever have been fairly described as a democracy. Um, I think there's always a question of when Turkey would consolidate its democracy. Certainly democratic practices, there have been, you know, the vote has been protected um, since almost the founding of the Republic. There's multi-party system since uh, the late 1940s, early 1950s. It was in the late 1940s where other parties were authorized. 1950 was the first time that they were able to uh, compete in elections. There have been dizzying arrays of coalition governments. But that has been compromised by uh, a number of things. Um, one, an important one, is that the military, uh, up until relatively recently, has given itself the power to undermine governments that it was supposed to support, constitutes supposed to support, but that uh, it did not like. And in 1960, it overthrew the government. In 1971, it overthrew the government. In 1980, it overthrew the government. In 1997, it overthrew the government. Uh, and at each moment, the military saw fit to rewrite, either rewrite the Constitution or rewrite parts of the Constitution, essentially to protect the state from the people. Uh, and this was, and, and, and so there continued to be authoritarian practices that came out in Turkey's kind of founding, founding, uh, founding documents. Um, what we've seen during the Erdogan era is that as time has gone on, you know, right out of the gate in 2003, the AKP undertook a number of very impressive political and economic reforms that were aimed towards beginning negotiations to join the European Union, a club of liberal democracies. And the European Union in 2004 decided that Turkey had done enough of those reforms and that it would give it an invitation 
to begin those negotiations. Hadn't fulfilled all the criteria, but the idea was that this would catalyze the fulfillment of the criteria that would make Turkey a candidate for EU membership. A number of years later, around 2007, 2008, a number of things happened in Turkish politics, which convinced, without going into the great detail of it, but essentially the, the traditional elite, the political class, were go- trying to prevent Erdogan from ruling and governing a way in which he was elected to do. And he pursued, a. Uh, uh, you know, there was an, uh, you know, arguably there was another military attempt a uh, power grab to prevent Gul, uh, Abdullah Gul, the foreign minister, from becoming the president because his wife wears a headscarf. Uh, and Erdogan outmaneuvered the military, called an election, and, an early election, and won that election. And it sort of forced the military to back off. But since that time, there were also efforts to close the party as a as a center of anti-secular activity. There were other efforts that Erdogan came, clearly came to the conclusion that this traditional elite, sometimes referred to as the White Turks, weren't going to let him rule, and pursued a a political strategy of division and of using the authoritarian uh, institutions of the state to suppress the opposition. And so what you see starting around 2007, 2008 is an increase of jailing of political opponents, uh, a broad use of the term terrorism to jail political opponents, more academics and journalists going to jail, the use of the state, the use of the state for blatantly political purposes to change to the owners, changes in ownership of, of media outlets in order to make them more pro government. And so there has been this steady decline in the quality of Turkey's democratic practices. But Turks clearly value their right to vote. And it's deeply meaningful to Turks. And you see a number of instances of this where they have defied Erdogan and have defied the the kind of deepening authoritarianism in Turkey. The the primary example of this is in the 2019 municipal elections in which the AKP candidate lost in Istanbul. Istanbul, I mean, Erdogan once said, if we lose Istanbul, we have lost the country. Uh, they, and he, and Erdogan's candidate, who was a former prime minister, lost. And so by hook or by crook, Erdogan and his advisors figured out a way to challenge the outcome legally. And they had to rerun the elections. And the opposition candidate who won the first round won by an even bigger margin in the second round. And that was Turks saying to Erdogan, our vote counts. Regardless of all the things that you've done in the preceding 10 years, uh, do not mess with the vote. And in fact, that opposition candidate did become the mayor of Istanbul. But of course, in the run-up to this presidential election, which is happening on May 14th, um, that candidate, has been disqualified by the courts. Judges who were picked by the Justice and Development Party uh, for some made-up infraction. And he was disqualified and couldn't run. He's actually part of the opposition coalition and has been named as a vice premier candidate, but he couldn't himself run as president because he had been uh he had been found guilty of some made-up charge 
that was clearly intended to prevent him from running for president. So it's it's truly a mixed bag. There are democratic practices, most you know, namely the vote, but other democratic practices, rule of law, have been human rights, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. Those things have been clearly compromised throughout uh, the last ten or twelve years of the AKP rule. And that leads us to sort of a really interesting moment, I think, in Turkish history, right? We have, despite the fact that American news sites and papers and the radio refer to Erdogan as an authoritarian, and it seems like he has many characteristics of ah, authoritarianism. Yeah. There you go. go There you go. We'll go with that. Um, He's now facing, is he facing a real vote? And uh, what kind of opponent is it? Is it a straw man or is this is this like a real person? This is a real this is a real challenge. I mean, I, I think that Erdogan is uniquely vulnerable. And, 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 and those analysts who say, look, if, if Turkey was an authoritarian system, you wouldn't really have this. And I, I guess my response would be, is it, is it an illiberal democracy? It's certainly illiberal. It's less than a democracy. It's an elected autocracy. It's 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 hard to categorize it, but this is a very real challenge to to Erdogan. Like I said, the the vote and these campaigns are meaningful to uh, to to Turks. This is not Egypt where, you know, there there may be a, a candidate, but it's it's not a meaningful thing. And so and, and what we know about Turkey is that it is deeply polarized and that about half of the. Up, up until this point, we won't know until the election, but about half of the population supports Erdogan and the AKP, and the other half does not. And he has governed the half that supports him and tried to intimidate the other half. He is vulnerable in this election for a number of reasons. One, there's been a lot of economic headwinds in Turkey. There's been a, a, a lira crisis. The currency has lost, you know... 50 or more percent. Last year alone, it lost 50 or more percent of its value against the dollar and has continued its slide. There's been significant economic mismanagement, even if the fundamentals of the Turkish economy remain actually pretty good. Um, there was more recently the very, very slow response to the February 6th earthquake. I, I think that speaks to the centralization of power in the presidency is that everything has to be approved by Erdogan. I have a colleague who's another Turkey watcher who always jokes that 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 even on university campuses, Erdogan has to approve the design of dorms. Um, I'm not sure how much of an exaggeration that is. So in this highly centralized system, the state could not move without Erdogan's permission to flow aid into the earthquake zone, which was enormous, enormous. 50,000 people dead, tens of millions of people affected by it. And of course, there's the the deepening authoritarianism of uh, of Erdogan's rule that I think Turks are uh, have grown weary of. Younger generation of people who know nobody other than Erdogan are sort of tired of his kind of overbearing paternalism. Um, so there's these kind of multiple reasons. But what's super interesting about this is that you know with these kinds of very significant problems. The polls demonstrate that it's pretty close. Um, he's within, he's down, but he's within five points of his, his opponent, Kemal Kilic Darolu, 
who is a longtime leader of the main opposition party and a former technocrat and economist, who is a very different kind of personality from Erdogan. Erdogan is very brusque and he he's very he's aggressive and 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 charismatic and 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 really does fill a room. I, I have seen non-Turkish speakers hang on his words, even though he's speaking in Turkish and they don't, because of how charismatic he is. Whereas Kilitsdorola promises a more quiet, a quieter kind of uh, uh, of leadership. In any event, um, it's close. But why is everyone even on the field? Why is he even in the game, given all of these problems? And so I think the concern is is that. It's because he's able to, there's two things. One, there are going to be plenty of Turks who do not vote the pocketbook. They vote, they're going to vote culture and they're going to vote identity. And that's why we've seen in recent days, and it's rather disturbing that Erdogan has picked up, um, uh, on homophobic and ethnic themes, uh, to gain an advantage to ensure that those people are going to vote on culture and identity issues stick with Erdogan. So, you know, in part, his closing argument is his opponent is gay, which is, he's not gay, but he's, you know, accused of being supportive of LGBTQ rights um, and that, you know, doing the bidding of the West, which is pro-LGBTQ. We've heard similar things from people like Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin. And this is really this play towards identity and, and, and culture. Um and he's able to mobilize the state, the apparatus of the state. Most of the press is in the hands of pro-government people. Um, they're able to penalize opponents like they did with the Istanbul mayor. And that's what makes this close. And I think that it would be absurd at this point to be able to say one way or another that Erdogan is going to win or Erdogan is going to lose. It's very, very close. Um, and that speaks to that there are Still things that matter that on, on the, on the democratic, if you look at, you know, kind of a spectrum of political systems, Turkey is not, you know, so far. They're, they're, my point is that there are still aspects, there are still practices, democratic practices that do mean something and are meaningful. And, and it's not only important to the opposition, but it's also important to Erdogan it's for his own legitimacies to say, Hey, I won. I won. You're listening to Angry Planet. We'll be right back. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back. 
with more of your favorite podcast, Angry Planet. So that leaves two wonderful questions, right? There's what if he wins and what if he loses? Well, the easier question is what if he wins? If he wins, he will take it as a a vindication of what he has done for the last 20 years uh, and to continue along the path both domestically and on foreign policy issues uh, and economic issues that he has he has pursued. Um, If it's close and he wins, though, I think that there is the possibility that, you know, his opponents could come out to the streets and and protest. Uh, there could be a period of of instability. I think that the, it's more likely that we'll see instability and potentially violence if his opponent, Kamal Kilitsarolu, wins and wins by a very small margin. Um, because you can imagine that Erdogan, after all this time, has every incentive to want to re- remain in office for the reasons that I, I pointed out. He doesn't want to go to jail. He wants to be the president on the 100th anniversary. He doesn't believe that the job has been finished, to use the words of President Biden, actually, uh, in his reelection campaign. Not to say that the two are the same. Um, and so he is hard to picture two people who seem that different. Well, but okay. and, 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 and there is some evidence to suggest that they really don't like each other, um, unlike the unlike either President Trump and President uh, Erdogan or the early part of uh, President Obama's uh, tenure. He and Erdogan had a good working relationship. Anyway, that's off the topic. Um, I think if Kilicharola wins and wins by a small margin, I think Erdogan is not going to accept it. Um, I think that he will try to do what Trump did or what Jair Bolsonaro tried to do in Brazil. I think the difference that between Erdogan and those two leaders is that Erdogan actually has the resources available to him to actually stay in power. Um, and a, a, a far larger group of people in Turkey whose wealth, prestige, and influence are dependent upon Erdogan remaining in power. So, um, and he has remade the security services. And so he can count on the loyalty of some. The, the question will be, and under those circumstances, will people p- peel away from, from Erdogan? Um, maybe, but maybe not. I think he, I, I do think he has a better chance of pulling it off than either Bolsonaro or, or Trump, which then could lead to, as I said, quite significant instability in Turkey and even potentially violence, which is not unprecedented in Turkish, uh, in, in, in Turkish politics. So if Kilicdorola were actually, though, to, through all of that, to become the president, I think you would see more emphasis in Turkey on EU membership. He has promised to return Turkey to a parliamentary system. Um, I think it's easier said than done. Um, I think in confronting a opposition that will be potent and vengeful, he may find that some of the institutional changes that Erdogan has made that have empowered the presidency useful to him in facing down uh, the opposition. I, although I I do think that Kilitro's head and heart are in the right place. I just think it's going to be hard to you know kind of snap your fingers and, re- and return to a parliamentary system. So I think the, the, the big issues for Kilicharolo are a, re- a return to the parliamentary system, which people see as a return to democracy, fixing the economy, and there'll be different emphases in foreign policy. By no means are those things going to make you know Turkey a, 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 an easier partner of the United States and NATO. Uh, you know, I think 
the opposition in Turkey is eager to normalize relations with the Assad regime in Syria. Um, Erdogan got that idea from the opposition because it proved to be popular. Um, I think they're going to take a very tough line on, on Cyprus, which is, uh, occupied by, uh, Turkish troops and Turkey's created a, 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 a an, an independent state in Northern Cyprus that only Turkey, uh, that only Turkey recognizes. They're going to take a tough line on this. Cyprus is a member of the EU. Yet at the same time, they're talking about renewing negotiations with the EU. They haven't said how they're going to deal with Turkey's purchase of a Russian air defense system, which led to a falling out with the United States and NATO and led to actually the United States to apply sanctions on Turkey. So there's a whole host of issues um, that will remain foreign policy wise and then domestic policy issues that are going to be very, very difficult for Kilitsdorilo to resolve quickly, as he has promised. Uh, should he become president? So the love affair with Vladimir Putin doesn't necessarily go out the window. It's not nothing automatic about that. I don't think so. I think I think at this point, Turkey's economic interests dictate a good relationship with uh, with Russia. Perhaps that kind of mano to mano thing that we've seen between Erdogan and Putin, which I think, you know, the, the bromance thing, I think it's been overplayed. But I think that they have found ways to work together. Uh, that have benefited Turkey and have benefited Russia and that signal that Turkey very much wants to pursue a, a foreign policy that's independent of its NATO allies, in particular, the United States. So I think that that may not be the same, but I do think that the Turks will continue to want to have the economic relationship that has essentially blossomed between uh, Turkey and Russia over the course of the last 20 years. Another question around this is, does anybody running for office like the Kurds? Are the Kurds on anybody's side? Or, you know, ha- what's the relationship there? Because Erdogan has actually gone into Syria specifically to attack Kurds. Right. You know, um, and of course, the Kurds who live in Turkey's territory have not necessarily had a great time. It really depends on which Kurds you're talking about, Jason. Okay. There are, you know, conservative religious Kurds who have voted consistently for the Justice and Development Party on that cultural identity. Issue. Well, the cultural issue, not the identity issue, because, but I, I have, you know, I, I describe, uh, I have a Turkish friend who is, you know, hardcore Kemalist. And he used to describe the Justice and Development Party, which is Turkish acronym AKP. He would say, oh, it's the Arab and Kurd party. I mean, it gives you a sense that there are Kurds who, who have traditionally voted for the AKP because it's, because they're religiously conservative and they're, and the party is religiously conservative. Then you have the kind of left of center, uh, Kurds, which are led by a guy named Selatin Demirtas, who's been in jail for five or six years now. Um, who, and he has proven to be a very successful and effective politician. Um, and, uh, those Kurds have essentially thrown their support to Kilic Dorolu and, uh, and, and, and what's called the Nation Alliance without actually joining it. And that's mm-hmm. because that alliance is made up of also people who are nationalists, religious nationalists, uh, other nationalists who are part of the nation alliance or what's called the table of six only because they dislike Erdogan. Otherwise there's not a lot that these groups have in common. In fact, there's an offshoot of the hardcore, you know, kind of right 
right-wing nationalist party that is a part of this nation alliance, something called the Good Party, the EE Party. And they are very problematic from the perspective of Kurds, but they all can agree that Erdogan has been bad for everyone. So they they are opposed to it. It's a real question. Although Kilic Durolo showed up in the Kurdish heartland in the southeast um, not long ago and received an extraordinary welcome from the Kurdish, predominantly Kurdish population there. So that was an indication that um, he he may very well get a bump up from from the Kurdish population who's been somewhat reluctant. And, uh, Kilic Durolo comes from the Republican People's Party, which is the party of Ataturk, and they have been previously hostile to Kurdish rights. But Kilitrola, one of his great successes, has been trying to sort of change the party within that to be a more inclusive party. Uh, it, the, the, the CHP, as it's known by its acronym, is problematic. It's a social democratic party. It's not as social nor as democratic as it would <laughs> like people to believe it. But this is something that Kilitrola has done um, that makes it, I think, relatively easier for the Kurdish population to throw their support behind him for the presidency. Uh, and perhaps this will make a difference in the, in, 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 in the contest between him and, and Erdogan will be Kurds. That'll be quite something. Uh, are there something, there are many millions of Kurds living in Turkey, right? 20% I mean, of the population. 20%. So if the population is 82 million. Do the math. You know, we're talking about 16, yeah. 16 and a half million people. Very, very big. And there are many, many Kurds who are well integrated into the political, social, economic life of the country. But there is this kind of systemic discrimination. For many, many years, Kurds were, weren't even referred to as Kurds. They were referred to as Mountain Turks. Uh, <laughs> they were, their, their language, their culture, their history was completely denied. That's because Turkey is an ethno-national state. It's based on Turkishness. And so, but if you're not Turkish, you don't, even if even if official documents grant you the same rights, you're you don't have those rights. There is systematic discrimination uh, against Kurds. Kurdish areas are less developed than than other areas of the country, so uh, there aren't the same kind of opportunity economic opportunities in the big cities. Those kinds of things um, that are pathologies in places all over the world, but are in particular based on the fact that Turkey is ethno an ethno-national state. And one of the drama, big dramas in Turkish politics over the course of a hundred years is the clash between Turkish nationalism and Kurdish nationalism. Well, um, I want to ask you just a couple more questions that before you go, if that's all right, it's all right. I cleared my afternoon for you, Jason. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> well, this, this conversation has been going a long time. No, uh, what I, I was wondering just a couple of things. One is, could you talk a little bit about Istanbul? I mean, when you said, you know, Erdogan said, well, if I've lost Istanbul, I've lost the country. Um, could you talk a little bit about its importance? And I, I've been there and I just remember, I mean, I was hugely impressed. I mean, Blown away, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. Just gorgeous, beautiful. One, of, I mean, I, this annoys you know, Parisian friends, but it's the most beautiful city in Europe, even though half of it's in Asia. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's stunning. And uh, I mean, the blue mosque is something that I think everybody in the world should see if they ever get the chance. Uh, I mean, the mosques in Turkey are unbelievable. I, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, 
hard to describe how beautiful some of these mosques and and it's not just the big main mosque you go into you know random, random beautiful stunning places um but i'm sorry i interrupted no i was just thinking you know about was it 12 million people or more live in uh istanbul oh no many more than that you know okay because i haven't been there million. for years 20 right. million okay, yeah well, north right. of 20 million um it's a huge huge megalopolis at this point has grown enormously and you know for for an american audience and this isn't a great analogy but istanbul and ankara is like washington dc and new york city um uh, ankara being the capital a little more staid a little more provincial company town Whereas Istanbul is, is, is cosmopolitan in, in every way. Um, and, and it is, and it is kind of, you know, you have conservatives and liberals and people who believe themselves to be Europeans and, and not, and everybody from all walks in, in Turkey and religions, you know, there are, you know, Muslims, but there's also a small Christian and Jewish community and even a remnant of the Armenian community that perished in the, in the Armenian genocide. Um, so it's extraordinarily, extraordinarily cosmopolitan, but Istanbul has also been for, you know, many years, a stronghold of the justice and development party. And that's why Erdogan, uh, it's, it's the imperial city. And, you know, if you, if you think like Turkish Islamists do that, the, that the Republic was not, is not natural. It was sort of an accident of history, a, a sort of a, a veering off from what Turkey's kind of natural pro, natural development should have been, um, you feel more comfortable in Istanbul. And, and in fact, that's often been the case is that Erdogan, you know, he, he has, I mean, previous Turkish leaders have had offices in Istanbul because of its importance to the country, but, but he is, he's actually kind of empowered it, made it this, uh, another place that from which to, to actually rule the country. And, um, when he was mayor, he did, a, as I said before, he did a very good job. And through this 20 years of sort of remaking Turkey in the image of the Justice and Development Party, Istanbul has become more and more a, a, a an AKP stronghold, which is why I think it was so shocking when they lost in 2019 to this guy, Ekrem Imamoglu, who was a member of the Republican People's Party, the main opposition, but it, I think it it spoke to the depth of corruption and authoritarianism that people were people were willing. I mean, and people came out to the polls to vote against the AKP in 2019, which spoke a lot about where how far the party had come from when it first came to power in 2002. Um, that it had almost worn out its welcome among. Uh, what had been a broader constituency, it's not just religious people that were voting for the Justice and Development Party, but as with the deepening authoritarianism, there were liberals who had voted for the AKP. Those, all those people were gone. They were gone. If you were going to bet, what not do you bet. think is, well, I mean, you know. I, I do. I actually, I have a bet. I have a public bet on this election. You do? Okay. I do. I'll tell you what the bet is. Mm-hmm. And it's with my my colleague from the Brookings Institution named Ashla Adin Tashbash. She also writes a, I think a monthly column at the Washington Post. Anyway, we bet we were on a podcast together, not yours, unfortunately. We we're on a podcast together in early January, in which we were talking about these issues. We were like kind of 
previewing the, the Turkish elections. And she was articulating her belief that she thinks that there can be this return to democracy, which is a valid position. I agree with it, of course. And one of the things I said was, I don't believe, I, I said, maybe I'm being, I'm not being creative enough, but it, it's very hard for me to imagine that Erdogan's going to lose cleanly and say, I lost, give a speech at the presidential palace, bid farewell, and then go off into retirement. And so I bet her publicly, and I don't bet. I mean, I've been to Las Vegas once and I went to the gym, not the, not the casino. And, um, I said, I will take her to any restaurant in the United States of America that she wants if Erdogan accepts defeat, gives a speech, and then rides off into retirement and, and lives out his days as a, as a retired statesman and successful politician. I just can't see it. So that's my only bet on this. But you were going to, you were going to ask me if I was a betting person. Yeah, no, that was it. That was the bet. And I, I actually, um, I'm going to uh, send her a list of restaurants that I personally <laughs> recommend. Uh, Danielle in, in New York is quite nice. Uh, I can definitely. I mean, I've said any restaurant. Any. <laughs> well, but you did problem. restrict it to the United States, so that can help. But I did. 11, I did. 11 Madison but still, Park is, uh, you know, but it's vegan now, so I don't know how you feel about that. I, it's it's up to her. I mean, yeah. it could be anything, right? <laughs> Well, thank you so much, uh, Stephen Cook, for coming on and uh, taking us through what's happening in Turkey. And it's, it's my pleasure. It sh- should be interesting. Should be interesting. It, it definitely will be interesting. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.